The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with John Lanier. John, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you, Laura. So John Lanier is the executive director of the Ray C. Anderson Foundation, and uh, that's actually your grandfather. Yes, Ray was my grandfather. I'm one of five lucky souls that got to call him Daddy Ray growing up. Oh, that's awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about your grandfather sort of before the foundation started? Absolutely. So Ray Anderson, he was a Georgia boy. He was born in a small town in West Georgia and earned his football scholarship to Georgia Tech. That was his only chance at going to college. Worked his tail off and eventually started a career in textiles. That beginnings of a corporate career is where he caught the entrepreneurship bug. And in 1973, in his mid-30s, he created the company that would be called Interface. And Interface is a carpet tile manufacturing company. That was the entire vision that my grandfather originally had for his company. He believed that interior floor coverings was transitioning and that carpet tile would be the future for it. He took the company public in 1983, and it expanded from there. And by 1994, Interface had grown into the world's largest manufacturer of carpet tile. By every metric, Ray Anderson had been successful as a businessman. Uh, But at that point, he hadn't given any thought whatsoever to the environmental impact that his company and other companies just like his we're having on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 1994 was was a really important year for him in developing his his new purpose in life. Uh, the story is is famous. Some of our viewers and listeners perhaps know it as well as I do. But Ray Anderson read a book. Here's a CEO of a publicly traded company. He happens to read one book, and the book called The Ecology of Commerce theorized that business and industry is causing the greatest amount of environmental harm that the world's ever seen. Mm -hmm. But it's also the only sector large enough, well enough, organized and capitalized to fundamentally solve our environmental challenges. And after reading that book, everything changed for Ray. And he spent the last 17 years of his life trying to make his multinational manufacturing company as environmentally sustainable as possible. And when he passed away... He left his estate to this foundation. That's what I do is help advance his legacy. Wow. So I want to know a little bit about the foundation and and what you do. Uh, But there's a couple other questions I had about your grandfather. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you remember the title, but Time Magazine called him. Was it the Environmental Man of the Year or something? What was that? It was, I believe, Fortune called him America's Greenest CEO. Uh, And they're Maybe were other titles that he received along the way, but that's the one that really stands out for me. And uh, what he said about that is that that was uh, more indicative of the sad state of American CEOs if he was the greenest (laughs) among them, but he earned that title. He, He saw environmental sustainability as a moral imperative 
uh, never lost the drive to be a successful businessman and wanted to make that next sale and the next one just as bad as he ever wanted to before. But his worldview shifted when he realized how important sustainability was and selling carpet was no longer the goal. It was a means to an end. He saw that being successful in business meant that his company could prove what was possible for environmental stewardship in the corporate world. And he found that it was able to make him more money. It did. Was it more money or was it just like a very good economic sort of It did engine? a few things. Uh, so when we he would call it the business case for sustainability. In 1994, when he had his epiphany, the conventional wisdom was that you cannot be both profitable or as profitable as you want to be and green that it's uh, an either or you kind of have to take a cut right that was the conventional wisdom and many people still today feel that way but the legacy of ray and interface's company has shown that the conventional wisdom was wrong there are four reasons why uh, interface became a more profitable company and one that was better able to withstand economic downturn. So it's not just do you make more money, it's also how well do you weather the lean times. Uh, So in the dot-com bubble of 2001 to 2003, for instance, Interface outperformed its peers. Yes, it lost uh, portions of its business as the entire economy contracted, but it gained market share. So it's a complex thing, but the reasons why in, in... brief why Interface was more profitable because of their authentic commitment to sustainability. First is that they took an aggressive approach to waste reduction and efficiency gain. And that's Mm -hmm. the low-hanging fruit of sustainability that most businesses realize when they embark upon this path. Interface was so committed to it that they got that low-hanging fruit and a lot of that mid-level fruit and beyond. Uh, So they became a more efficiently operating company. Mm -hmm. Second, Sustainability was a catalyst for innovation. Better products came about because they were committed to this new mission. They turned to practices like biomimicry. How does nature do blank? How does nature design? And that made for uh, really fundamental breakthroughs in the business. Third is that the culture shift at Interface was incredibly valuable. They could attract better talent, retain that talent, and everybody at the company was now united around a common higher purpose. And that made for a much more efficient company as Mm -hmm. well. And then finally, there's goodwill in the marketplace for the companies that truly do right by people and the planet. Not Mm -hmm. everybody will pay more for their products, but quite a few people will. And they were much better positioned to win those sales in the marketplace. So you mentioned biomimicry. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite topics. So and- the word is coined by was coined by a woman named Janine Benyus. Janine is an accomplished author and ecologist. She wrote this book in the late 1990s called Biomimicry. And the idea was that nature has been engineering itself. For 3.8 billion years, complex multicellular life has been engineering itself for hundreds of millions of years. All along the way, nature has had to solve problems, and it does it in the most sustainable ways imaginable. It does it with no toxins emitted into the environment, powered by locally available materials and energy captured from the sun. Nature is this brilliant engineer. We can learn from her. 
So biomimicry as a discipline is simply the process of asking, how does nature blank? How does nature filter water? How does nature capture energy from the sun? How does nature design its ecosystems? What are the systems rules and the dynamics around that? How does it get rid of waste too? How right? does how does it get rid of waste or yeah. or how what are the principles that allow waste to not even exist as a concept in the natural world? It mm. has so perfectly engineered itself that there are no byproducts in a healthy functioning ecosystem. Why? Well, biomimicry helps us answer that. And it can be incredibly valuable for product design as well. So it's not just about lessening your environmental footprint. It is a fundamentally different approach to design, to research and development. If mm -hmm. every business would start by saying, has mother nature already solved the problem that I'm trying to solve? I think we'd have better products, but we would also have this deeper respect for nature herself. Mm -hmm. oh, that's very cool. And there's a challenge too with the foundation, right? There is. Uh, biomimicry was in inspirational for Ray and for the people of Interface. And we wanted to pay that back, pay it forward, I suppose. And we support the Biomimicry Institute, a nonprofit that tries to get this design discipline out there in the world. Is that out of like a university? Or no, uh, it's headquartered in Montana, but they have people working in multiple states uh, all across the country uh, with chapters around the world. Now, it, there, there are societies that have uh, rallied around this concept of biomimicry that they're connected to um, all around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and we fund a design challenge and a startup business accelerator all around this concept. How can we nurture startup businesses that begin with nature as the core of, of why they exist and who they learn from? So is that a grant for like students and people who want to start their own companies and they can apply through the foundation if they have a good like biomimicry? They apply project? through the Biomimicry Institute. Right. Our funding allows for the Inst Biomimicry Institute to run this challenge in this small business accelerator, okay, yeah, cool. startup accelerator. And the foundation also has a center in one of the Georgia universities. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And that's about like sustainability in business, I guess, in the business school. Ray Anderson went to Georgia Tech. He loved his alma mater. And so when it came to making grants that would advance his legacy, it was a natural fit for us to make a grant to Georgia Tech. So there is the Ray C. Anderson Center for Sustainable Business within the Scheller College of Business at Georgia Tech. Very cool. uh, and it's the place where the Ray Andersons of tomorrow can learn about all of the ways in which business and industry intersect with environmental issues. Very cool. So a lot of my listeners are, are young, so I think that they would maybe be interested in checking that out if yeah. that's like a, a path that they want to take. And I saw something else on the website. It's called The Ray. Mm -hmm. this and one's it's fun. a highway? It is a highway. Your skepticism is well-placed. <laughs> a lot of people wonder, what is that little foundation in Georgia doing with a highway project? <laughs> Let me tell the story. We believe as a foundation that our best... Uh, work is building upon Ray's legacy, what he represented within the broader environmental movement. Well, we were honored in the summer of 2014 to have the Georgia State Legislature rename a portion of interstate in West Georgia the Ray C. Anderson Memorial Highway. Oh, so it's an actual highway. It's an actual highway. I thought highway. it was like a test strip in the no. desert or something. Uh, it's 18 miles of interstate from exit one, West Point, where Ray was born, right on the Georgia-Alabama border. 
to LaGrange, 18 miles up the road, where Interface was founded and where its North American manufacturing still can be found. So a natural place to have a road name for this uh, this industrialist who took on sustainability. Uh, but it was my aunt, one of our trustees, Ray's younger daughter, who said, oh my goodness, we just named a dirty highway after the greenest industrialist. I don't think, I don't think Ray would like this. And with my aunt Harriet Langford's leadership, we embarked upon answering a question. And the question is the exact same one that Ray asked about industrial manufacturing. He said, what would a manufacturing company look like if it were sustainable, if not regenerative? And then he tried to create that with Interface. Well, we asked, what would a stretch of interstate look like if it were sustainable, if not regenerative? And can we create that? And so that's what the Ray is, this 18-mile stretch of interstate where we want the technologies of the future that will make our transportation systems better, where they can come and be demonstrated. Things that will make our roadways out of more sustainable materials, filter stormwater, generate renewable electricity, all while being at the forefront of emergent technologies like automated vehicles and connected vehicles with a fundamental goal of creating a highway where there are zero deaths, recognizing you don't have a very sustainable highway if people are getting in accidents and dying on it. So it's a very wide-ranging vision. But the first time we could confidently say that anyone had ever taken such a holistic approach to bringing our roadways into the 21st century. And I'm so proud of my aunts and the leadership of the Ray. It's a standalone organization that we spun out and that we now fund. I'm so proud of what they've accomplished. That's very cool. So, you know, I drove down here from Canada. So it was like a seven hour drive mm -hmm. to Philadelphia where we are now. And the highways are, are very good. And I feel like they're not very crowded, you know, and I, I wonder if people are just flying so much more now, right? So maybe your innovations and stuff like that will help people kind of get on the roads a little bit more. Because um, I know people just fly city to city to city, right? It's like easier for them, but it has a big carbon footprint. It does. So if you're in like a little electric car or like, you know, a small one, it's it's a very little carbon footprint um, if you're using those highways. So mm -hmm. that's very cool. And uh, your your grandfather, he worked under the, the Clinton and the Obama administration both, is that right? Is Just that... the Clinton administration. Um, and he was involved with a, a recommendation plan for the first 100 days of the Obama administration, but it wasn't within any sort of uh, official capacity with the administration. Yeah, and that was just for like environmental um, like recommendations and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. Yes. And he's written a couple books? Yes. Two? Yes, two books. The The first one, Mid-Course Correction, was in the late 90s. It was a few years into his environmental epiphany, so it was very forward-looking. Uh, what he wanted Interface to accomplish. He called it the prototypical company of the 21st century. And that vision is what the company has gone on to deliver upon. Uh, and we've actually, our foundation has republished that book recently, bringing it up to date with new content telling where Interface is today. And uh, I wrote the six new chapters for that, so I cast an eye to the future. Um, but Ray also wrote a book in the late 2000s uh, called Business Lessons from a Radical Industrialist, which was in many respects some of the highlights from the journey that Interface had had to that point up Mount Sustainability. So that's the book that you wrote, or did you write another book as well? I wrote 
the back half of Mid-Course Correction Revisited. So the first half is my grandfather's original first book, lightly edited, and the second half is what I wrote. Very cool. Uh, so can we talk about you a little bit? <laughs> we, we can. <laughs> I like talking about my grandfather a bit more, but go right ahead. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's nice to have so much respect for like our elders and yeah. stuff, so it must be pretty amazing to follow in his footsteps. And it seems like you're doing a very good job at that because you have a law degree, right? Yes. And now you're the director of a foundation that's doing really wonderful things. So um, how, how did you get into sustainability? Like, is your whole family very environmentally oriented and you just sort of like follow everybody's footsteps? It is. It is. It's hard not to be part of Ray Anderson's family and take this seriously. It, it's so embedded within our family's values. Uh, I would say that it's also been a maturing process for me. I was eight years old when Ray had his spear in the chest moment of reading Paul Hawkins' book. I had no idea what was happening with him and with, with the company then. I didn't realize how transformative he was. But as I grew and reached my teen years and eventually went off to college, I came to really appreciate that he saw the world in a new way, in a very important way. I have not just the same passion for sustainability that, that my grandfather did because of his inspiration, but I've learned so much from him as well. And uh, I didn't originally think that I'd be doing this work with the foundation because I didn't know it was going to be an opportunity. Ray didn't tell anybody that when he passed away that this is what he was going to do with his estate. There were no promises made, no, uh, we weren't prepared for it. It was a wonderful gift, but a surprise when we found out that our family would be working to give his, his legacy away, his estate. Uh, it has been such rewarding work, and I've found, reflecting back on my journey, studying economics and getting a law degree, practicing in federal tax, learning the law of tax-exempt organizations, which is why my family felt I was hireable for this job, I've seen that I've been in the right place at the right time. Uh, I would put that to a higher power myself, uh, but it has been fulfilling on a deeply personal level to be working with my family to protect our planet for the benefit of future generations, which is exactly what my grandfather was trying to do. That's very cool. And uh, did you do you do things in your own life that are sustainable? Like, do you try to bring a water bottle or? Oh yes, like oh yes. I uh, I do everything that I can, and I'm fortunate to be in a position where I can can do quite a bit. Uh, so my my wife and I, when we bring it, when we bring environmentalism home. Uh, we found that waste is actually one of the most tangible things that we can come to grips with on this. Yes, right? It's an easy target, it's, I guess. It's an easy target. It's not easy to accomplish hitting that. Uh, we have, uh, for instance, yeah, we have our blue bin. Every, most everybody's got their blue bin at this point. But I have learned just how much of what we put into our blue bins eventually ends up in a landfill yeah. due to contamination of some sort. So. Yeah. We only put the easily recycled materials into that. We sort out other things like glass, like plastic bags, um, like styrofoam, and we take them to a, a facility five miles from our house that specifically collects those materials. But that doesn't even allow for us to recycle everything. So for the things that don't work for that, 
we have become huge fans of the company TerraCycle. They have oh, a good. zero waste box. You may know all about it. But, I use it. Yeah. Oh yeah. So for we, my little tiny pieces. Ah, uh, we have. Yeah, we we get one of the big ones. And for anything that we can't find a local way of recycling, we put it there. Cool. Uh, the one thing that prevents us from being a zero waste household is diapers. I have a three-year-old son. I have a one-year-old daughter. My one-year-old's still in diapers. We haven't figured that one out. Uh, I know we could do reusable diapers, but the water intensity of that is what has caused us to go towards the disposable route. But we're trying. What state do you live in? Georgia. I live in Atlanta that has uh, a strained watershed, if you okay. will. Okay, yeah, yep. and California does too, right? So mm-hmm. where I live in Canada, we don't have water issues. So for us, you know, it kind of makes sense to right. go with the cloth. But yeah, I've heard that uh, it can be an issue. Yeah, it, it, there that, are so. trade-offs. There are, and you there have are, to accept yeah. that. Yeah. So when you when you wrote the second half of the, or was it the first half? I wrote the second half of Mid-Course Correction Revisited. The second half. So did you notice anything had changed? Because your grandfather wrote it in the 90s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The late 90s. Yeah. And then you just sort of did this recently? Everything has changed in so many respects. Uh, for the broader environmental movement, things have, have changed for the better in that there's there's not a Fortune 500 company out there that doesn't have at least one person whose full-time job is sustainability. Really? So we have, it's it's made it onto the corporate agenda. So go us. But it's also changed in that the scope of our challenges has gotten bigger, more severe. Uh, When we look at, in particular, the issue of climate change, the climate crisis, it's being called that for a very good reason. It's getting worse, pretty much. It's getting worse. Yeah. Um, We're feeling the impacts of it, and we're not moving fast enough to... uh, transition our world to one where we create a stable climate, where we reverse global warming. We're at the point now where we have to reverse global warming, not just level off emission growth. No, we have to get to a point where we see less carbon in the atmosphere on a year-on-year basis. We're a long way away from that. So a lot has changed. For Interface, a lot has changed. They have accomplished so much, so much that they are ready for their next mission. They're not just trying to achieve sustainability, a point in time where they can say, we do no harm. They want to work now to become a regenerative enterprise, one that makes the world better in some way because it's operating. And they're focused on climate as well. Right now, Interface is trying to become a carbon negative, climate positive enterprise, if you will. Uh, It's got to be hard. It will be hard, but... (laughs) Their research and development team has had some tremendous breakthroughs in finding out how to make their product one that sequesters carbon. Turns out, if you use enough bio-based material in the backing of carpet tile, it can be carbon negative. For every carpet tile sold, less carbon is in the air. And they are, they've done that at prototype scale. Now they're working to scale that and commercialize it. So, so much has changed and it was fun to, to have the perspective to really look to that. Are they using recycled materials as well? Is that another? That's the primary component of what they call the fourth face of Mount Sustainability. The the company conceived of many different things within a a fully sustainable enterprise. Zero waste, 100% renewable energy, benign emissions into the environment. Well, the Mm -hmm. fourth face is a closed loop manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. They make their product out of oil. So the only way that they can achieve sustainability is if they can figure out how to make all of their future product out of 
old carpet. Mm-hmm. And that process, it's been a, an evolution for the company. At this point, I believe 56% of all of their materials are recycled or bio-based. It could be more if they could get enough old carpet made of nylon and, and the same backing material. If they could get enough of it back, the reverse supply chain piece of the puzzle. Um, mm-hmm. So they, the company continues to do great work around that, but recycled content has been a core component of their overall sustainability effort. I've been saying this for a long time on the show that it's businesses that are creating a lot of waste, but it's businesses that can really help, right? It's it's some of the, the big giant companies, if they just make little tweaks and differences, it, it has such a big impact, right? So It does. It's the question of scale. Now what we yeah. need is for those big companies not to make little tweaks, but to fundamentally reimagine the way that they operate in the world because we have to go faster on all of our environmental challenges. And I continue to believe that business and industry, just as my grandfather discovered back in 1994, must lead. And that leadership cannot be incremental. It must be transformative. And that's what the books are about, right? In part, that's exactly what it's about. And there's a YouTube video too that I think we can access on your website. It's a animated video. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, we call that our, our brand video. Uh, uh, it's a, really good. Thanks. Whoever thanks. made the animation of that video like did a great job. And you know, sometimes it's hard to get kids to pay attention to these really good <laughs> messages. So when I saw that, I was like, yes, I can show my kid this and he can understand. But it's like some complicated issues and it makes it really easy to understand. And so I like that video. I'll try and post that on uh, my website. I appreciate so, that. So listeners can see it, but it was really great. And I did want to ask you about talking with Ellen MacArthur from yeah. the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So you got to sit down with her? Uh, virtually. Uh, when researching and interviewing people for the reissue of my grandfather's first book, for Midcourse Correction Revisited, I was thrilled that Ellen and Andrew Morlay, her chief executive officer at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, they uh, sat down on at their computer uh, and I and mine with the Atlantic Ocean between us. And we had a conversation for about an hour about their work and it it's featured in one of the chapters of the book that I wrote. I think the world of what Ellen has has been embarking upon with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Mm-hmm. Did you guys talk a lot about the circular economy? It is. It's so aligned with what they're trying to do and trying to create the circular economy to work with governments and businesses to imagine how this can become the norm. Well, that aligns perfectly with the work of Ray Anderson, the people of Interface, to try to make their business one that is closed loop. That was the term that Ray used back in the 90s, but circular economy is is the, the term today. Uh, we find that what they are asking business to do is what my grandfather was trying to do. Uh, and no one has done as much as Ellen, Andrew, and their team uh, to create the conditions where the circular economy can begin to scale. Their thought leadership, their moral conviction for this being the right way, and their ability to effectively engage businesses and governments, a complex task in its own right, they have some sort of magic going on over there. And if I'm if I'm placing my hopes in a few people to fundamentally change the world for the better, Ellen's right there at the top of the list. And the Racy Anderson Foundation. Yeah, we, we'll do what we can. We'll do what we can. Glad that we are not alone in this work. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, well, this has been great. So I want to thank you so much for sitting down with me. My pleasure. And uh, you spoke today at the New Metrics um, conference as well. And I heard I that that was absolutely excellent. I heard that people really enjoyed it. So I hope so. Um, well, that is John Lanier, and he is the executive director of the Racy Anderson Foundation. So thank you so much for joining us uh, once again. And uh, that was just great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Did you know you can now find our episodes on YouTube? If you have a YouTube account, please like, subscribe, and comment on there. And if you haven't given us a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, please do so. It helps the algorithms push our show up in search results, which means more people will discover the show and more zero-waste solutions will be shared around the world from our amazing guests that we've had on the show. I'm a volunteer at my local college radio station, and I don't make very much money, so if you have a few bucks to spare each month, you can sign up and be a patron on Podbean. There's a little reward button you can click on there. I'm also on Patreon, but I want to keep all my content free for everyone instead of putting it behind a paywall, so... You also can donate directly on the show's website, zerowastecountdown.com. We are a registered nonprofit in Canada called the Zero Waste Countdown Initiative. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks to our listeners in America, Canada, Germany, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Spain, and wherever else you're tuning in from. Together, we're going to change the world. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.